0: Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoone. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey, everyone. I hope you're having a great day. It's me. I'm back episode 201. Many of you know I did my first ever live podcast with the Myrna Valerio episode 200. You can listen to it anytime. You do not have to be live to listen to the live, but if you are live, it just makes it a lot more fun. It's a really cool format and I have made a decision that for the most part, I am going to do live episodes going forward. In the meantime, I have a couple interviews that I recorded a few weeks back. And after these, get ready because it's all live all the time. Um, today, I bring you an amazing woman. Her name is Nellie Vasquez Roland. She is the founder of an organization called A Safe Haven. So, let me tell you a little bit more about her. A first generation American. The young Nellie was a natural leader, becoming the first in her family to graduate from college. We talk a lot about her background and how she grew up on the west side of Chicago and really surpassed the expectations that her neighborhood sort of had in place. So she's really gone on to do incredible things. So after college, she spent 13 years as an investment banker Uh, leading several firms across the nation, just being a total badass. And it was during that time that she had to rise up to the challenging and emotionally draining task of, of, of overcoming the issue of alcoholism in her family, something I know well, and we talk a lot about today. So this incident, this time in her life, fueled a strong belief that no family should have to suffer through an already tragic situation. In 1994, she established a safe haven with her husband, Brian Rowland. A safe haven was welcomed instantly in the community in Chicago for its innovative and groundbreaking approach to an issue that has long plagued many economies, and that issue is homelessness. Um, In the meantime, Nellie has written two books, which we talk about today. The first book is called Healing, Real Stories Told by People Who Have Overcome the Homeless and Opioid Epidemics. It's big time. It features stories from the people in her community that are heartwarming, brutal, and I think will leave you very inspired. She's also written her own memoir called An Elegant Solution, which I believe launched on 420. After our conversation, I said, you know, Nellie, I know you in the publishing world, you got to kind of set your launch dates, but 420 is commonly referred to as the time of day when you smoke pot which is funny that I know that because I don't, but in Boulder, you know, it was definitely when you would start smelling it out your window. <laughs> and um, and I thought it was hilarious, and so did she, that, of course, you know, her work in this world is to help people who are going through addiction and regain their footing. So she said, I'm going to turn that on its head. We're going to make some kind of press play or joke out of it. Um, so anyway, I believe an elegant solution is also available. You can definitely find healing, just about anywhere books are sold. The big thing to note is that they are really working hard to expand their organization and bring this mission of helping people um, overcome things that would definitely take most people out to many other areas beyond Chicago. And in order to do that, they need to raise a little money. So they are putting on a virtual run to end homelessness. It's literally the run number two, endhomelessness.com. It's the week of July 17th through 24th. Um, I encourage you to get over there and check it out. We all need things to do to keep us going, and it always helps to have a greater purpose behind putting one foot in front of the other. So with that, uh, get ready. Nellie is truly a fireball, and I am really, truly honored to know her and to be able to simply spend an hour in the presence of, of somebody with such great vision. It's time to bring Nellie Vasquez-Roland on the show. Let's do it. Nellie, I am so grateful for you to take some time to talk to me today. You're making such huge changes in the world. We've got to get the word out.
1: Thank you, Nicole. I'm so excited to be here today.
0: Uh, so you are in Chicago, my old hometown. What's what's going on in Chicago these days? <laughs>
1: Oh my god what isn't happening in chicago you know we're the epicenter right Of, of 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 this country uh you know in the heartland and there's so much going on you know that's affecting so many people you know in my line of work you know being on the front lines of helping the homeless and helping people that are impacted by substance abuse issues um, you know, and today homelessness is, you know, one of the biggest underlying epidemics, you know, happening, you know, beneath the uh, the shadows of the pandemic right now. You know, we have all hands on deck, you know, at a safe haven. We've never shut down during this pandemic. In fact, you know, what we're really proud of is we actually stepped up right in the very beginning and we opened up what's called an a safe haven medical respite for COVID positive people. So we partnered with Rush uh, and with the Chicago Department of Public Health back in March of last year and said, we cannot forget that the homeless are most likely to get the COVID-19 spread it, get really sick because of so many underlying conditions and die from it. So what are we going to do about making sure that they have a safe place to come to? And gratefully, uh, everyone agreed. We partnered. We opened up a medical respite. Uh, on April 11th, we're about to celebrate our one year anniversary. And uh, what that medical respite did is it provided medical professionals, behavioral health care professionals, for anyone who was homeless or was not able to isolate in their own home in Chicago, to be able to come to this place, get all these uh, service healthcare services, behavioral health care services, in person, telehealth, nutrition, and come out on the other side with a discharge plan that was gonna connect them to the right level of housing, education, job training, if that's what they needed, jobs and permanent housing. So we've had over 600 people. We just had our 600th patient come in. And I'm so proud, Nicole, to say that, you know, considering the high risk population that we're dealing with, we've had 100% success rate. Oh, my God. About to release a video today of someone that came through the process of being sick in a rush hospital, uh, been discharged to the medical respite, got discharged after the medical respite into our program, and is someone that was in crisis, addicted to heroin for 20 years, and in and out of prison for 20 years, and today he has a job, and he's fully in recovery, and now he's moving into his own apartment, and uh, and that's the kind of stories that I live for, Nicole, to tell you the truth, and we've had 130,000 people that have come through our program in the last 26 years, and there's so much more work that needs to be done, so thanks for having me on your show. I'd love to tell people more about it
0: oh my gosh the the power of the world you live in like we all want to live in worlds of empowerment, and you are at the pinnacle. I want to go back to one thing you mentioned um we were talking briefly here about the pandemic and it hit me as you were talking about how i don't know if ironic is the it's the wrong word, but like it makes me feel like we're all a bunch of babies because we all of us who are homed or have homes live in homes. The pandemic hit, and we all started complaining about how annoying it is to be stuck in our homes and You just opened my eyes that there is you know a whole a whole community of people who are not lucky enough to have homes, nonetheless to complain about having a home right so Maybe we can just kind of open it up and talk a little bit about this community that you serve, the homeless community.
1: Yeah, yeah. well, you know, it's considered an invisible population, right? It's hard to count. Um, but, you know, there's, there's numbers out there from the census numbers, for example, uh, that in Chicago, there's over 5,000 homeless people. But there's also other studies that show that there's over 86,000 homeless people in the Chicago land area. And uh, I'm inclined to go with the higher number you know what most people don't realize is that when people are living in doubled up situations you know you've got several families living under the same household you know and um and that's one of the main reasons why we had such a big spread in some of these low income communities because you have so many people living in a household where you've got two or three families, you know, uh, living in a two bed, three bedroom apartments, right, so that's, um, you know, again, uh, just another example of what homelessness looks like, you know, so if you don't have your name on a lease in your own apartment for your own family unit, then you are living in a transitional housing situation. And uh, if you count the number of students in the Chicago public school system, for example, that are defined in living in a transitional housing situation, then you come up with the number of like seventeen thousand students, which is uh, you know you just do the math and you figure they have one sibling, they have two parents somewhere out there, and uh, I mean the numbers just continue to escalate. So it is a number, it is an issue that has been uh, rising uh, throughout the country and um and we know you see it in the encampments every day as they continue to grow in cities like Austin Texas and LA and San Francisco and Chicago and New York you know uh Miami I mean every city uh, urban city you go to right now you cannot help but notice uh the number of people that are you know living you know in unhealthy uh conditions right now so um the pandemic has done one thing that i think is is a positive is it's opened our eyes again to how fragile uh, people are economically. We've always said it. There's lots of reports that have come out from time to time. I always try to highlight them for people, but 40% of the population was living one paycheck away from being homeless, right? And, uh, and as people lost their jobs and uh, couldn't go to work uh, during this time, you know, that was a major reality uh, for tens of thousands of people uh, that never expected that they would be without work because they work hard, right? And even though they're not making as much as they should be making, you know, they were uh, somehow making ends meet. Uh, well, once that uh, once that ended, you know, reality struck. So every homeless shelter, every uh, food pantry right now is being inundated, you know, with calls for help and uh we're grateful at a safe haven to do our part we know that even with the uh what people don't realize too is with the pandemic the cdc came out and said look you people that are living in congregate living situations or homeless shelters need to decompress so most homeless organizations have people sleeping side by side in couches or not couches and cats and um anyway if they had a hundred people in their homeless shelter, they all of a sudden can only have forty because they had to have that uh, six foot you know restriction, and uh, and so going after the pandemic, we actually have less homeless beds than we did before the pandemic, which was already below, uh, way below what we really needed in Chicago. I think we had four thousand homeless beds, so we probably are down about ten percent at least than we were before. When the numbers are going up, so it's not a bad, it's not a good uh, you know situation, but by the public uh, getting involved and hearing more about what's needed, and being able to be in a position and and know that how grateful we are to have a roof over our heads, right? Mm -hmm. And some of us able to work, you know, from home, um, you know, what could we do to help to make sure that we're doing our part to help somebody else? I think it's something that people are really becoming empathetic about today.
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, One thing you said is that the homeless are considered, or we, we don't see them. They're an invisible population, and we're seeing them more now. The The people that we tend to see are the people on the side of the road who look rough, and they've got the signs, and we become hardened a lot of the time to the plight of people who are asking for help. And I'm not sure if the people we're seeing on the side of the road are actually representative of the population that you're actually talking about. Because when you said, you know, 15,000 or 17,000, you know, kids in the Chicago school district are likely homeless, like that's not who I'm seeing and who I'm talking about. So it's interesting to me because there is, I have a, a huge level of empathy for anybody who's going through something hard in their life. But I will admit that when I see the same person holding the same sign on the same street corner, I it's I don't know why I. it makes you want to turn away and go the other direction because it feels like even if you say, hey, I'll help you with some money or I'll help you do this, like it doesn't seem sustainable that you could help them
1: every single day. Right. And I think that's what, that's what I want to help people um, think about is how, what is the best way, you know, what is the best way to help people that are in crisis? You know, and for me, while giving them, uh, you know, a dollar or $2 or $5 or $10 is uh, a great thing to do. um, I think it's also important to support organizations like ours that actually provide the shelter, the uh, tr- the uh, treatment services. We have a whole multidisciplinary team of professionals that are clinicians, that are educators, that are job training workforce developers, that are uh, employment services specialists, right, that are placing people into jobs and placing people into housing. By supporting our organization, you're actually supporting an entire ecosystem that by design is helping people achieve uh, sustainable success. You know, we help people identify the underlying conditions they may be suffering from, and then we provide them the right kind of services for their unique needs because there's no two people that are alike, right? It's not homogenous. So we have people that have college degrees that don't need any GED classes, that's for sure. You know, and we have people that come in that have, you know, that are plumbers and they've got their trades, you know, so all they need is treatment. You know, so there are people, you know, again, that need everything that have been, you know, growing up in a situation where they never got the right kind of you know, life skills or education or job training. And so for them, we have services too. So for us, it's so important to individualize the services and not make assumptions as to, you know, a few dollars will help them get back on their feet. Uh, but at the end of the day, what is the system? That's the beauty right now that we have at the, with the pandemic. For the first time in history, since we've been doing this for 26 years, we actually have a once in a lifetime opportunity to reimagine. Delivery system. For the first time, we're acknowledging there's an opiate epidemic. For the first time, we're acknowledging there's an affordable housing crisis. For the first time, we're acknowledging that the un- people that are unemployed, you know, need our help, right? So I think that uh, for us to really be, uh, I think, uh, uh, accountable uh, to the funders, right, to the taxpayer, you know, we and to the into the philanthropists, like what could we do to uh, combine our resources public and private resources in a way that's going to get the money to where people are going to get the most help and achieve the most success so i always tell people for the people that we serve their time is money too right so let's not waste their time let's get them to a place that's going to get them to where ultimately they need to go they can go because we discover skills that they didn't even know they had and develop them and help them move on to the next stage in life and guess what once they have that foundation they run with it right and uh i came out with a book uh nicole was telling you before we got on the air called healing which is just that it's a it's an anthology of 12 stories that came to a that were truly down in their luck talk about being in crisis how they survived only God knows they were in crisis, some of them, for 10, 20, 30 years, addicted to heroin, estranged from their families, in and out of the criminal justice system, and as a taxpayer, costing us a lot of money, right? And and somehow they survived all of that, ended up in our program, and today, uh, 10, 20, 30... Uh, years later they're owning their own businesses they're raising their own families they're reunited uh you know with everyone that they had lost in their lives before and um and we're just grateful to have a book now to tell the stories and to serve as a testimonial to what's possible so that we can look at the problem a little differently and not look away but look at someone and say, oh my God, I wonder what else is going on? What treasures do they have to offer our world that we're missing out on? And uh, and that's the great thing that we get to do and see every day at AC Even
0: You know, I just love this world that you live in. It's, it's a world of empowerment, of watching people transform. These are the good stories. I know not everybody has that perfect fairy tale ending and i'm sure some of the people who come through on the other side have their struggles you know and the, and they're going to battle things throughout their life but you're providing them tools and helping them make change have you ever hit periods where you've questioned if this is just too hard like you know i guess i would relate it to like training for a marathon you know, you you get buoyed by the successes in your training. You're excited, but then you go through some hard times and you're just like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Maybe I'll, I won't even, I'm going to drop out of the race or whatever. But you know that feeling when you cross the finish line is so special. And it's like the book, healing. I mean, we all need to pick up this book because we all need to hear these stories and um, they're going to provide everybody inspiration. But have you had any experiences with individuals or or any other experiences with a safe haven and the work you do that made you wonder if you should keep
1: going? Um, yeah, really, the biggest challenge, you know, the work, going into work, doing what we do, seeing the people, yeah, we don't win them all, you know, but we don't give up, right? Um, recovery is a process, right? I mean, there are people, it takes a few times, you know, for them to get really get it and uh and every time they you know they come if they you know don't make it the first time they're welcome back you know the next time they want to give it a shot and the second time and third time you know that they come they know a lot more uh, about what they're getting into so now they're ready to buy in to the process you know they've tried it their way and it didn't work so now they come back and especially when they see uh the people that they may have come through a a cohort right they get to know each other and they start to see their their uh you know fellow you know cohorts start to succeed and they want some of that for themselves you know so that's the most important thing is that the peer-to-peer uh that they get to see and the peer-to-peer support and the encouragement that they get from people that are going through the program with them so that's that's extremely valuable you know so that they don't feel alone and they don't feel like you know this is this is only happening to them you know but it happens to a lot of people and you know and there's it doesn't matter how bad things have gotten for you there's always someone in the room that's got it worse <laughs> which makes you feel like hey if they can do it i can do it too so yeah what makes me uh, frustrated really is the biggest challenge has really been fighting the entrenched system to be honest with you i mean first of all the stigma right and the way our government has really allocated resources has always been a very frustrating uh, issue to fight. So I've always said our biggest competitor has really been the criminal justice system. So if you think about it, back in 1994, when they were passing laws to really uh, you make it difficult for people that were suffering from what we believed, back in 1994, we knew that the World Health Organization, the American Medical Association, had declared substance abuse and alcoholism a disease right? So why were we strengthening laws? Why were we making them draconian? Why were we putting people in a situation that was going to completely shut the door uh, for them to get access to housing, to get access to jobs, which is, you know, underlying, you know, issue was a disease. So for us, it was incumbent on us to take a leap of faith, leave our careers in finance, to do something, to build something that was going to be, I believe, an alternative, but we, we needed the empirical data, we needed to show people that it needs to be comprehensive, it needs to be integrated as you can't leave any stone unturned, you've got to provide education, treatment, you know, job training, jobs, permanent housing, if you can put all of that together and provide those services under one roof, then you increase the chances of success for each individual that comes through and makes it through to the other side. So that's been our biggest challenge: is really, uh, you know, fighting the entrenched systems. When you know all the funding was really going towards these systems, and as you recall, the war on drugs. Uh, I mean, people don't realize, but ninety-eight percent of those dollars went to building up that infrastructure, went to building up the criminal justice system, went to building up the police, you know, uh, responses to these issues, and building prisons. Right. And about 2% of that money went to treatment. So I felt like that was a little bit lopsided. You know, we really needed to really help the people that were in crisis and, you know, us dealing with substance abuse issues, behavioral health care issues differently. And in a way that was much more humane, much more compassionate, much more effective and accountable and a better use of our resources. So I think philanthropy, you know, too, is really catching on uh, that, you know, we need to give to more than just feeding people or more than just training people for jobs or more than just treatment it has to be again a very integrated ecosystem that we design and we can do this right now as the world is reimagining what are we doing about you know the problems that we're facing and now that we've got this cares act money we've got a huge surge of funding heading every city and every state which in most cases they have pretty much carte blanche on how they're going to spend it you know it's so important that we make sure that they make sure that they leave no stone unturned look at every type of programs that are out there, look at the ones that have the empirical data and the success and the track record for success. And let's not try to reimagine the wheel, right? Reinvent the wheel. If there's programs that are working, support those.
0: Oh, I love that. It's true. Um, You talk about recovery and homelessness sort of going hand in hand. And a lot of times my experience is that when we create organizations Or brands or products. It's largely due to something we needed, our own experience in this world, you know, something we could use to make our lives better. What's your personal connection to this world of homelessness and recovery?
1: Well, I don't think I could do the work that we do if it wasn't authentic. Right. And especially when you've had to fight through so many challenges with funding, you know, and making sure that the people that we were serving never felt the pressure of, you know, wondering where their next meal was going to come from or where they were going to stay the next night. So that was a tremendous amount of pressure. If you think about it for 5000 people a year, that's a lot of miles to feed. And that's a lot of people that we employ. And, um, you know, and again, if it wasn't because of a personal experience that we had in our own lives, you know, I don't know if we would have had, you know, the will to continue or the interest, right? So, uh, but thankfully, you know, I grew up in a a poverty-stricken community. Uh, I saw the how, you know, the issues of substance abuse ravaged uh, lives, ravaged families and ravaged communities and uh, led to, you know, a lot of crime, a lot of incarceration, um, and you know, when I learned about the issue of substance abuse and alcoholism being a disease in college, right? Uh, it was because I met my husband in college, and he had just returned from the military, and he was having trouble transitioning. And uh, you know, he became a friend, and someone I took an you know an interest in, you know, figuring out you know how can I help? And he asked me to join him on his journey uh, as he was required <laughs> uh, to go to a recovery program, right? To go to treatment and uh, he needed a friend to go, you know, into these meetings with him, and I was invited uh, to do this. I was probably the busiest person he knew, which I never understood why me, you know, because I'm like, wait a minute, I work full-time, I go to school full-time, but we're going to make it happen, because I knew that, you know, if he didn't get help, that something bad was going to happen, so it was in those rooms that I learned about so many families that were experiencing these issues, and uh, I had, at that point, Point, you know, growing up where I grew up, where the path for people that had these types of issues was down, you know, I lived down the street from Cook County Jail, which is the largest jail in the country and little village. So I knew that that was going to be a direct path for so many people that eventually that I knew that were suffering from these issues was going to be, right, is to end up at that jail. Um, and, and I never knew that there were programs called treatment, you know, where people can go to and actually get help. And I never knew that it was a disease. But we also knew as he was going through the process that he was really lucky to have a huge support system, to have the ability to have an education and ability to be employed even at that time uh, and go through treatment that, you know, what was missing was Mm -hmm. why isn't this available to uh, people in general, anyone who needs help. And um, so it was never lost on us how lucky we were to have overcome, you know, our own personal Uh, experiences that could have ended badly for both of us just because of the environments we were in and, you know, what was happening all around us and even in our own lives. And uh, so, you know, over time, you know, we both built our careers in finance, and we were able to really think about the idea that it was time as we started having our first child and I was pregnant with my second, it was time to start thinking about giving back, you know, so you know, to those that much is given much is expected, right? So we went through a Jesuit university, you know, and we were always uh, in our families, you know, uh, very much so always about giving back. We thought, you know, what were we, what was it, the issue that we were gonna care about the most? And what was personal to us was substance abuse. And um, and it just so happened that was, we started to build uh, and invest in properties that were abandoned that needed uh, in, in distressed communities. And we knew were areas where people did not have access to resources and services, in 1994, these laws were becoming very draconian. And we also saw that the budget cuts for treatment programs were happening, you know, and health insurance was no longer covering, believe it or not, the 28-day stays. So even that was going away. So we knew that, you know, this was going to spell disaster for people that needed help, and they were eventually going to end up homeless or in prison. So we start. we decided that as we searched the universe and said, what does the public system look like you know what are the food the food stamp programs look like the housing programs look like and we really couldn't find any evidence or any information that let us know that these programs were working in a way that aligned with our values for us it was about empowerment it's like, yeah, people are hungry, but what are we going to do about helping them? You know, you teach a man to fish, right? And <laughs> He teaches, he fishes for the rest of his life, right? So for us, it was about not only giving fish, but teaching people how to fish. So because of our own experiences, you know, we knew what was needed and that was much more than the components of what people need, but uh, and as an aggregate, you know, access to all these services based on their individual needs. So uh, thankfully, you know, Throughout the years, you know, uh, we everything that we do is really informed based on demand of what we saw was needed. And we were always just figuring out ways to fill those gaps. So today we have a vertically integrated system that provides housing, education, treatment, job training, job placement, and housing. So, and we also built businesses because since no one at the time wanted to hire people, we said, well, let's build some social enterprises. So we own a landscaping company that does most of Michigan Avenue, uh, that gets admired today. All the tulips are starting to come up. So people are being reminded of that. And then we also have um, you know we have a catering business, we have a culinary arts training program and uh, we also have a staffing business. so we work with about 200 employers that are friendly and open to hiring people with non-traditional backgrounds. So we're proud to place over a thousand people a year that no one else in the world would probably hire into jobs and you know those employers are so happy to have extremely motivated, trained professionals coming to work every day, helping them grow their business. And now even today, we have some uh, people that have come out of our programs that are featured in the book too that are even entrepreneurs themselves today. So that's it. That's amazing.
0: Okay, so what's interesting to me is that a safe haven, which you've been doing for 26 years Mm -hmm. from when you first launched, right? Right. Um, It's changed so many people's lives, affected, I mean, from what the stats say, over 100,000 people have success, successfully been through your program. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was a homeless facility, but what I'm learning is that that's almost like a symptom like where it really starts and where your passion started was with substance abuse and addiction and helping people overcome that. Because if you could help them overcome the root, then you could treat the symptom, right? And I think that is where a lot of people um, probably have the wrong idea. They see homelessness and they don't think, oh, let's get to the root cause. They just think, well, let's, let's just get them off the street so we don't have to look at these people, which sucks, right. and yeah. which also leads to this whole concept of stigma, which I think we should dig into a little bit. Like, why why is there such a stigma around not being a, ho- a person with a home?
1: Yeah, well, unfortunately, when people are under the influence, they burn a lot of bridges. You know, and I've seen, you know, back in 1994 and 2000, people didn't mind telling me, I mean, it was, it was, it was not such a politically conscious, you know, uh, world, you know, where people would be, you know, very honest with me and say, Nellie, you know what, all those people that choose to do drugs should just be lined up and shot because they don't deserve to be in this, you know, world with us that want to follow the rules, that want to live, do the right things, and have the moral compass, you know, to uh, to live in this in a developed society, and you know, so most people uh, in America, you know, we we have judged people uh, because we believe that in America, you know, you can you can be anything you want to be, and we do, we we can be, right. But what we forget is that, you know, so many people, uh, you know, become uh, alcoholics and addicted without even realizing that it's happening. And before they know it, they're fully, you know, uh, sick, you know, uh, with the disease and, you know, everything that comes along with that. So they burn bridges, you know, they... Um, they hurt people, you know they commit crimes you know they the the disease is overwhelming and it 's something that they absolutely lose complete control over you know and they have behaviors that they would not do if they were not under the influence and have deep regret and remorse uh and shame you know uh when they do you know come clean you know come out of that cloud. And um, and that just kind of self perpetuates, right? So they self medicate because they feel bad, and you know, and it just goes on and on and on. Uh, but again, it's physiology physiologically, you know, it is something that their bodies become very dependent on. So again, they have no control over, you know, uh, their 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 addictions. And uh, and what we do at a safe haven is we help them learn how to live in recovery. And the book is called Healing, uh, because it's a lifetime commitment, right? It is something that for the rest of their life, they're going to have to understand that there's no cure for addiction, right? They actually are going to have to learn how to live in recovery for the rest of their life. And they're always healing. And aren't we all, aren't we all always healing? You know, I mean, we all have. Bouts of depression. We all have bouts of, you know, self doubt. We all have bouts where, you know, things didn't go our way, or someone we know is suffering, and there's nothing we could do about it. So, what? How do we cope? You know, and how do we learn to get over those things? And you know, right now, job loss and the, and the issue of isolation right now is really hurting uh, the recovery community. Uh, as we know, the worst thing you can do when you're in recovery is, you know, isolate. You know, uh, it's so dependent. And, you know, being engaged and being social and, and giving back and making a difference becomes, you know, a part of, you know, uh, everyone's DNA. And, uh, and to have that taken away, you know, and having to live, you know, in isolation is causing a lot of relapses right now. So one of the other things that's happening in the shadows of the pandemic, that's not getting enough, inf- you know, uh, press, is really the fact that we have a huge surge in the opioid epidemic. And, you know, and I want to say 80% of the fentanyl is fentanyl's involved. So there's definitely a lot going on there's a lot of work that needs to be done, uh, but we cannot starve uh, the programs that are out there that are helping the people get back on track and you know when you think about again the war on drugs right the fact that we were putting more money into the criminal justice system and ways to incarcerate you know and arrest and you know, uh, and in fact, make the problem worse, you know, where we should be putting money into helping heal, you know, the root causes in a way that's going to be sustainable, right? And this is just about addiction. It's about everything else that happens. Because if you have someone come through a recovery program, but then they still can't get a job, and they still can't get permanent housing because of those barriers, their backgrounds or bad credit you know in criminal justice history you know then you know it's just going to be a vicious cycle so it's so important that while we have a shot in some cases one shot at helping someone let's help them in a way that's truly going to be intentional and helping them get back on their feet in a sustainable way and i think that what's been lacking is that people have uh, come to the conclusion like hey I tried helping this person and they didn't want to listen right so you know they made their bed and the in it right but people have good intentions however they're not equipped right just like uh, a cancer specialist knows what to do about cancer you and I can't do that but what we can do is get people to a place that knows what uh, this these issues entail knows uh, has them in a place that by design is going to foster success and that is the way to really help people make that tra- fully transition into a mainstream lifestyle that they choose to do after that. And, you know, uh, they don't disappoint. You know, so many that have found this new lease on life, what I find is they end up making up for lost time. And before you know it, they're going for college degree after degree. Going, you know, I mean, they're just, they're just filled with, you know, exhilarating enthusiasm, you know, for uh, all the things that they know they can do uh, now that they've got the presence of mind to do it. Well, because
0: momentum is a beautiful thing and, yeah. uh, and it's you're contagious. creating
1: that. Yeah, it's
0: contagious. Um, I love a few different thoughts have come to mind. I feel like you have created an organization that sets people up for success, not failure. Too many times, you know, people have grand plans, they create things, but they don't they don't go all the way through the cycle. And so eventually failure may be imminent for many people. I, you know, you've mentioned many of the services. You've mentioned that it's a vertical organization that's holistic. Can we just walk people through, let's pretend it was me 12 years ago before I got sober. And I was down some dark spiraling path and my life could look very different. And I realized I needed to, to get some help because I was headed towards Cook County, you know. So if I knock on the door... Can you walk people through what what the program looks like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Nicole, welcome to A Safe Haven. (laughs) You're going to be welcome with open arms and uh, people are going to treat you like a long lost sister. Uh, So many of the people uh, that work for A Safe Haven have actually, believe it or not, been through our programs. You know so we actually have a training uh, for people that have an interest and in working in the field so we get them certified uh, and you know pay for their education uh, for higher degrees and uh, and we're so proud to say that many of our leaders and many of our frontline staff are people that have actually been through the program so we do have the experiential uh, lived experience you know staff and we also have the academic staff so it's a perfect beautiful blend where there's a lot of you know cross. Uh, training, you know that happens, and uh, so I mean it when I say it. You'll be welcomed, you know, uh, like a long lost sister, and everyone just jumps at the opportunity to help the next person. And uh, you'll be introduced to our uh, intake specialist, uh, who will describe to you, uh, you know, what the program is all about. Uh, they will give you some rules. Uh, they will give you um, c- connect you to a uh, case manager. Uh, the case manager will escort you uh, to your private semi-private room you're not put out in a a room with like a bunch of cots. you actually have semi-private accommodations semi-private bathrooms you know so that you're getting your dignity back right And you're getting you're feeling uh, human again you know you've got fresh pillow a fresh blanket your own you know uh, linens and um And, you know, you come down and, you know, you're fed, you're given a healthy breakfast, we have a culinary arts program. So our, our teams uh, always serve very good healthy restaurant quality meals uh, for breakfast lunch and dinner. And um, so if Nicole if you came and you have children with you, we'll make sure that they get uh, the kind of services that they need too. so some children, moms come with their children and people don't realize that those children need some trauma from care services as well. And then we'll also figure out like where that child needs to be in terms of education. So while you're in our program, getting treatment and all these wraparound services, your child will be enrolled in the local school system. So you get to get up every morning, get them ready to go to school. You walk them across the street. There's an elementary school and uh, you get to come back and then you get to you know work on yourself throughout the entire day. So uh, depend- we'll find out, we'll connect you. Uh, to all the uh, different departments, so the uh, case manager will set up an appointment for you to meet with the education team, uh, the uh, treatment team, the clinicians, uh, the job training program, and we're going to get a full assessment in terms of what's your baseline, you know, what are you experiencing, uh, you know, psychologically, where are you at academically, where are you in your work history, And, you know, what is it that we need to plug you into uh, in a way that's going to triage your situation in the way that needs to happen? Believe it or not, Nicole, not everybody that comes to our program has a drug and alcohol problem. You know, some people are escaping a domestic violence situation, you know, and had nowhere to go. Or some people just lost their jobs and just couldn't make ends meet. And we're looking at potentially being evicted. And nobody wants an eviction on the record, right? So I always tell people, just come as soon as you know that you're not going to be able to make rent because we do not want to see that on your record because then it becomes a little hard, a lot harder to place you in an apartment. So once you're in our program, you know you'll be going through this process and uh, of getting all these um, assessments. Once we have a full assessment of you know what's going on, we'll be able to put you into a, a schedule uh, that's going to make sure that you're getting access to all the right services that are unique to your situation. And um, and if you need to stay, if you need everything, you know, then you'll probably need to stay longer. Uh, And if you uh, don't need a whole lot of things then you stay as long as you need. So, Nicole, if you came in and you had no issues other than you just need uh, between jobs, then guess what? We have access to a full. uh, a computer room where you can go in there and go on the job search on your own because you know your field, you know where the jobs are, and you might not need our help, you know. So it's really, uh, again, individualized, and uh, there's no two stories alike. Uh, but the good news is, everyone uh, has in common is they all need a, a hub, a place to live that's safe and conducive to their recovery. They also need three healthy, nutritious meals a day. And, uh, and then beyond that, everyone's path is completely unique to their situation.
0: I saw um, oh. somewhere in the literature that you use the term housing as healthcare. And I really, I really appreciated that. I thought it was an interesting way to look at it. And especially the idea of getting your dignity back. Because until you have that, it's hard for you to even look people in the eye to take your first steps forward.
1: Housing as healthcare is uh, something that we have been saying since we first started, because we didn't understand, you know, when if you didn't understand that uh, homelessness, substance abuse issue is a public health concern, right? If you didn't understand that, then how can you begin the process of starting to help people? If you didn't acknowledge the healthcare piece, right? Uh, although. You don't see people physically bleeding out on the streets or with broken arms. Mentally, they're hurting just as much, right? So for us, in order to help uh, get people's heads around the idea that you cannot begin the process of healing unless you have a roof over your head, we actually trademarked the term called housing as healthcare back in 2004. And we hope that by having that slogan, it will start to impress upon people the idea that no one, absolutely no one, no matter what you're suffering from, whether it's physical, mental, you know, you cannot begin the process of healing if you do not have a roof over your head. So the idea of treating people with substance abuse issues in and out of the emergency room and discharging them back to the street wasn't acceptable to me, right? So the idea of helping people uh, get Uh, the mental health services, treatment services from an overdose, for example, but then discharging them to an appropriate level of housing and care, such as a safe haven, that to me makes sense. So that's one of the beautiful things about what we are learning and we're helping people understand that what we built with the medical COVID-19 medical respite is a repeatable model for the opiate epidemic. So I had that individual that I described earlier who came through our program who was addicted to heroin for 20 years, in and out of the prison system for 20 years, homeless for 20 years, right? How many times did he end up in the emergency room overdosing time and time again? I'm sure countless times. Now, the fact that once he got COVID and he got discharged to the medical respite where we were able to provide him the healthcare services and the behavioral healthcare services and the assessment, we knew, that discharging this person to a, um, a different level of housing and care as a post-recovery, you know, idea, got him into our system. So now that same person, eight months later, is clean, sober, employed, and moving on to his permanent housing. So that is the way that we believe we need to treat people that are suffering from the opioid epidemic. If you have anyone that's coming out of an emergency room from an overdose get him discharged to a place that's going to know what to do on the back end, or you're going to see him again in the emergency room if we're lucky, if he makes it. So the average person that suffers from the opioid epidemic goes in and out of the emergency room six times a year at least. So we're not doing uh, something right. It's a definition of insanity. So I'm really, uh, really intentional, hopefully hoping that this, if we've learned nothing else with this pandemic, we're finally acknowledging I'm using that health care housing as health care, you know, it, we've got to elevate that because we are finally acknowledging that homelessness is a public health issue because for the first time we realize that the health of the homeless affects our health. They ride the buses, they use the public restrooms and they're in places where we go. And if they're not healthy, we're not healthy.
0: Oh, that is really powerful. Um it's it's interesting. A safe haven almost feels like a a school where you graduate and get a degree. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, yeah. And you celebrate. <laughs> you celebrate it, you know. Um, yeah. I you know, we've been talking a lot about the psychological and the physiological issues. I think we should talk about some of the physical therapies. So you are a big runner triathlete. You've done some triathlons, right? Um, And you have a passion, not only for physical fitness yourself, but you're paying it forward by using running as a way to raise some moolah um, with the run to end homelessness, which has been going on for a while, but now is going to be in its second virtual year. Let's talk about running. How'd you get into running?
1: I've been running uh, since high school you know, and it's not, we didn't have a cross country team at my high school. I just knew that running made me feel good. So I would get up in the morning. I'd be at school at seven in the morning. I'd go to my gym. I put on my gym uniform and I'd go out in the morning and go out for runs around the, you know, the campus. (laughs) No one else was doing it. I was doing it. Where'd you go to high school? I just knew. So in Chicago, uh, there's a school called a Jones Commercial. At the time, they changed the name now to Jones Academy. But uh, for those of you that don't know, believe it or not, Jones Commercial was a, uh, was a vocational uh, high school. And it was in downtown Chicago. So uh, this is kind of a funny story because you, know, you never know where those seeds get planted, right, in your life. And right next door to my high school was, uh, was a homeless shelter. Right next door. So I used to get up off the off the train. I used to take like two trains and a bus to get to work every morning. I would get to school every morning, so like an hour and a half commute to school. And um, I would get out, out from the the tunnel from the train, and uh, right in front of my high school was uh, was were homeless people, because they'd get let out at in the morning at seven in the morning. So you would have like a sea of homeless people that I have to walk through every day to get into my high school. So as a as self-preservation, because I was afraid of them, you know, I would try to smile at them and say, hi, hey, good morning, good morning, good morning, <laughs> to just to get past them, you know, and hope that they would be nice to me and they wouldn't hurt me because, you know, I didn't know anything about why these people were out here and they certainly didn't look normal, right? They were dressed bad, they smelled bad, they were like, you know, I didn't know what to expect, right? No one talked to us about homeless people when we were in high school. We didn't think about it back then so anyway so that um i got to know some of them you know as i would walk into school and i'd know them by name and uh so it was nice you know i would volunteer there once in a while as well uh and but anyway i would get to school in the morning i knew that if i got there early enough it would give me time to go in put my gym clothes on go for a quick run at grand park which was right down the street you know beautiful chicago and uh, and then come back and then get on with my day you know and i just knew that if i did that uh that my day would go better for some reason plus you know the lunches there were really good to me <laughs> like i don't want to have to restrict myself you know from the pasta <laughs> you know so anyway um so for me it's uh, even in college you know uh, i was always running before school you know always just kept it up and um and then i started doing um, you know 5ks and 10ks uh whenever i could find them i would sign up for them and uh and then finally started doing some triathlons and I've run a couple of marathons um, and I just you know every day right now during the pandemic like every day I get up in the morning I run two miles like my day isn't going to go isn't going to feel right unless I got my run and so uh, I think that you know there's lots of studies today like there weren't the studies back then but today there are finally studies and there's even books uh, there's one that I would recommend even called uh, Spark by John Ratney I don't know if you've read it but he finally uh, validated me right because I would tell people Let's go out and get people running. Let's get the homeless walking and running. Let's let's work up a sweat. Uh, let's get you know because to me that is a free uh, therapy, you know, for for mental health. And now the studies show that it helps reduce anxiety. It helps reduce ADHD issues. It helps reduce uh, addiction. You know, it helps uh, improve memory. I mean, there's so many physiological benefits to it. And actually, in this book, they do a case, a couple of case studies. Would show, like, even working with the lowest performing students uh, at Naperville Central. Uh, they got these students in at seven in the morning, the lowest performing students coming in and uh, getting them running every morning. It was really about your heart rate, it wasn't about your speed. And uh, that really was a metric that they wanted to go by to see, you know, for effort, right? And uh, they found that one these low performing students ended up becoming the best performing students in the school because what the coaches said was that they get their brains, uh, you know, uh, new uh, brain cells formed, right? Which helps uh, improve their ability to learn and comprehend. And um, the backlash to that study was, well, Naperville Central is probably one of the wealthiest communities, right? So who knows, these kids probably had tutors, you know? So they took that same idea and went to a low income uh, community in another state And uh, with a school that had, you know, uh, low performing students, lots of behavior uh, issues, and they did the same thing. And not only did the students improve in their education uh, uh, results, but they also found that they had zero behavior cases, right? No fights, you know, during the school year. So I believe strongly that you know exercise, whether it's running or walking, uh, can help people really have a much better outlook in life. You know, and no matter what you're going through, I mean, for me that's where I get my creativity. That's where I get my ideas, right? I don't even listen to headsets because I don't want anything interfering with my brain just wandering, you know. So I think that, you know, uh, to me, uh, 11 years ago, you know, I knew that, you know, there's not enough people in the community that are taking advantage. Our our headquarters is a beautiful 140,000 square foot uh, facility, state-of-the-art, beautiful, uh, manicured you know campus uh, on four acres it's like an oasis in the desert we're in one of the lowest income communities in the city and uh, across the street from us is a 200 acre beautiful park that nobody uses the kids aren't in there playing. the parents aren't in there walking their kids kids with strollers because it's also considered one of the most dangerous parks so to me what i wanted to do is i wanted to use that park and incidentally i grew up in that park because I grew up in uh, across this, you know, my dad had a soccer team. You know, that he was on. So we would go there every Sunday. And it just broke my heart that people weren't using this park. And it was really hijacked by, you know, uh, drug dealers and, you know, people just, I mean, there's shootings there all the time. So, you know, people are afraid. So I figured the only way we're going to get this park back is if we, you know, bring something positive to it. Uh, so for uh, six years in a row, I was hosting and producing a run walk to end homelessness. And people, you know, told me that nobody will come <laughs> because of its location, but we shattered that perception, and not only did they come, but we even outgrew uh, the park. So we moved it uh, to downtown Montrose Harbor, and, uh, but now with uh, our 10th year last year, we were so nervous that, you know, at a time in the height of the pandemic, when we knew people were isolating and they were sitting, right? Sitting is the new smoking, they say, right? It's a it's a disease. More people are dying from inactivity, you know, than you know ever before. So for me, it's about we got to get people moving again, and we cannot cancel our run. So as everything was shutting down, the St. Patrick's Day parade, everything was shutting down. I was like, no, we're not going to cancel. So thankfully, within three weeks of the of the uh, of the run, we finally had to let our sponsors know that we're pivoting and we're going global and we're going virtual and. It blew me away that people came uh, our sponsors did not go away they actually some of them even up their sponsorship and uh, we were able to have a very successful year and we had people from spain from the dominican republic from switzerland you know from seattle joining in which was my dream i was like oh my god i've always wanted to have this run walk to end homelessness you know become a national and global opportunity for the world to participate in and who knew that it was going to happen with the pandemic. But for me, you know, the more people we get moving and families moving together, I think that is going to be a big step towards our own mental health and helping solve homelessness at the same time, because all the proceeds go to help the homeless.
0: So how can people sign up for this year's event? When is it? It's
1: July 17th through the 24th. So you have a whole week. If you sign up, for a 5K, you could do 1K a day and you're done in five days. If you sign up for a marathon, you could do it, you know, in and try to break a record. You know, it is completely up to you. You could do a 5K, 10K, half marathon or marathon. You could do it by yourself, you could do it with your team, with your family, with your coworkers. And uh, so for me, it's just a great, great way to just unite all runners, reunite all walkers for one common cause for one week only. And hopefully they'll continue to do it for the rest of the year. But at least for one week, let's do it together. And you can go to the website. It's run2endhomelessness.org. Again, that's all spelled out run 2 And you can go to our website, asafehaven.org. And that'll link you to the web to the run site as well, and learn more about what else we're doing. And uh, I invite everyone to follow us on social media, sign up for our newsletter, and uh, stay in touch because uh, homelessness is a major epidemic. And again, there's a lot of root causes to homelessness, and you know, right now uh, the pandemic. Uh, You know, experts are predicting we're going to see about a 40% surge in the number of people that are, you know, facing homelessness and we're doing everything we can to brace for that and it's happening right now. Uh, As we speak, we're seeing the numbers go up and we're also, you know, hoping that more people participate and support because we cannot do what we do without the support of the community and the public and, you know, our our, uh, elected officials, you know, let them know that you know these programs do exist and that it's so important to uh, support them so that we uh, can continue to do the work that we do. So thank you. You
0: know, all right, there will be links in the show notes as well. So reach out to me if you can't remember any of this and I will make sure I send you to all the right places and we're all gonna be running some kind of 5K to marathon in July this year. That's for sure. So I have one yes. more question before we wrap it. Um, you are such a force of nature you're amazing. Have you always been this dri- driven? <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I was, in, you know, finance and, you know, always driven, uh, you know, even I as guess a I, girl I guess I was a, at a time when there were hardly any women only Latina, you know, and, you know, always had to, you know, uh, you know, just, just work really hard and, you know, pay my way through college, you know, so I'm grateful for all of those challenges and all those opportunities to really, you know, Find out, I guess what you're made of. And people ask me all the time. They're like, you've been doing this for 26 years. You know, why do you, why are you so excited about this? <laughs> it's like, because it's exciting to know that what, you know, we have another person leaving our program that's got their life back on track and it never gets old. I'm always a sucker for trial and triumph. You know, I'm proving you know, that the underdog can win. And uh, so for me, it's, uh, it's, you know, I get to live the dream and the privilege to do the work that we do every day. Uh, and um, invite people, you know, to be a part of it. And um, so thank you, Nicole, for having me on your show. And hopefully we'll continue to stay in touch, you know, and get those runners out here, you know, participating. I know for a fact, you know, as runners, we see it probably more than most, you know, because we run past these people. And now it's nice to know that there's actually something we can do about it. You know, we don't have to look the other way. We could just say, look, we got your back, go to ASAP Haven, they'll take care of you. This is the place that, you know, knows how to get it done. So, uh, and we promise you, we won't disappoint. We'll take care of everyone that gets into our program.
0: You're not getting off the hook this easy though. There is one final question here that I ask everybody who comes on the show. We're going to wrap it with that. Are you ready? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> for you, it's going to be really easy. If you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be?
1: Just be optimistic. Don't give up. You know, be optimistic. Uh, there's, you know, for me, uh, you know, the, taking on the challenge – I mean, when we first started safe Haven, you know, people thought that, you know, we were a little crazy, right? Like, who takes on a challenge of ending homelessness and actually does a run and calls it an end in homelessness, right? Like, uh, but, you know, I'm an optimist. I believe that the vast majority of people are good, inherently good. And, you know, we all want to help and each in our own way. And uh, so I'm optimistic that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, love. Will prevail. What a perfect sentiment. Wow.
0: Um, I know why you're so excited because you're continuing to grow and expand, not just your organization, but every day I can just see it in you. You're growing and expanding through the work you do. It's feeding you just as you are feeding all of these incredible people and love will prevail. So thank you. And thanks thank for coming can. on today. We, uh, I feel very lucky to have had the chance to sit and and talk to you in person here through Zoom. (laughs) But um, I know that everybody listening is better for it as well. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you. Have a great day. See you in July.
0: (laughs) All right, I'm back. What an incredible conversation with Nellie Rowland. I wrote down about 25 nuggets. I'm sure you did the same You know, I just love this philosophy. We all have a different take on it, but I'm with Nellie on this. I believe that the vast majority of people are good and love will prevail. I really think that's true. And I hope you do too. And simply by listening to Run This World and hanging out with me, I think you're probably after 200 episodes getting that vibe. All right, everybody, it's a wrap. Episode 201 in the books. Uh, look forward to hearing from another incredible visionary next week. And if you want to rewind, go over to episode 200 and listen to the one I did live with Myrna Valerio, the Myrnavator. Um, whenever you need a little inspiration, a little pick me up, or just to put a smile on your face, I encourage you to listen to her because... That's what she was born to do. All right, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout and I'll see you next week.